hearts are full of gratitude this morning, Father. Even while we have, many of us, experienced difficulty this week, some of us have experienced great difficulty, grave difficulty. Some of us this week have been with friends who have put loved ones in a grave. And we have wept and we have cried. Others of us have experienced illness ourselves. Others of us have experienced the brokenness of relationships and the sorrow of various kinds of loss. We have felt the weight of the world pushing against us. We have felt temptation to sin. We have hated the remaining flesh that we carry with us. And we have hated the pressures on us, the enticements against us. And we've hated the brokenness that comes from our sin. And in the midst of all these things, Father, we are thankful. Thankful because we have a Father to come to. Thankful that we have one who understands the pressures of temptation and the burdens of this world infinitely greater than we do. For he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He experienced the full onslaught of Satan and hell against him, and he did not waver one instant and move one micrometer towards sin. He is a faithful Savior. We are thankful, Father, for while we suffer in this world, we are confident of what lies ahead, and we look forward to it with great joy and anticipation. And as we look forward to it, we thank You that even while we still wrestle with the flesh, You are working in us to sanctify us and to purify us and to make us people who are worthy to serve You. And Father, would You take this word this morning and accomplish that in us. And even as we make that request, we thank You for what You already have been doing in us, both individually and corporately, to sanctify us so that we might serve You and honor You and exalt You and glorify You. Would You guide us, Father, into this understanding of this particular passage, this familiar passage, and that we would delight in You all the more because of what we see in it this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We need to change. All of us need to change We have been called to change. Change is necessary for the one who is in Jesus Christ. The Scriptures continually affirm that, not only in the passage we're going to look at this morning, but the Scriptures affirm that repeatedly. Consider, for instance, just a few passages. Romans chapter 6. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. In other words, obedience is necessary. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
And now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Change, sanctification is necessary. Romans chapter 8, Christ condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, there is a possibility once we are in Christ to fulfill, to satisfy the requirements of the law. Not, not in the sense of we are justifying ourselves, but because we have been justified, now we can fulfill some of the things that God has called us to do. We can be pleasing to Him and obedient to Him and honor Him. Again, Romans chapter 8, So then, brothers, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You, you must put to death the deeds of the body, and because you're in Christ, you can put to death the deeds of the body. 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, Now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. It is is a calling for the believer to purify Himself and He equips us to be pure before Him. Ephesians chapter 4, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. We have been designed by God to be like Christ our Savior, to be sanctified. Philippians chapter 2, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, because it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Work out your salvation. Your salvation has implications, and the implication is your transformation, your change, your growth in Christ-likeness. Friends, sanctification is basic to the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. And as Paul transitions in Romans chapter 12, he is moving from a heavily theological section in the first 11 chapters to now the implications of that theology. And he's moving to, to demonstrate to us in very practical ways what our sanctification looks like. What will our new life in Christ look like? Now, in chapters 5 to 8, he unfolded what sanctification is. He, he unfolded how that takes place in our lives. He has unfolded for us the work of the Spirit to sanctify us. But, but starting in chapter 12, he's going to point to very specific ways in which we might serve Christ so that we are working out our sanctification. And in these opening verses, uh, verses 1 and 2, our theme is simply this. Let's see. It's on. There we go. Because God is merciful, let God transform the practices of your life. Because God has extended such mercy to you, in response to the mercy received, transform the practices of your life. And, and, and what we know is even as we transform the practices of our lives, even as we work towards sanctification, we understand, right, that, that it's God who is behind us. It is God who is empowering us and equipping us for that process of sanctification. In this verse, particularly verse 2, we are going to see three characteristics, three aspects 
of that transformation that takes place in our lives. And just by way of reminder, we've already looked at some of this last week. There's an obstacle to the process of transformation, isn't there? There's, there's something that's standing in our way that's hindering us, that, that wants to stand against us in the process of transformation. And it is, in a word, the world. So he says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. Friends, we cannot overestimate the power of the world to stand against us and the danger of the world system. When we talk about nonconformity to the world, we're, we're not just talking about what we do, though, are we? We're also talking about what we think. We're talking about the influences on our mind and our heart and our, our desires, the way we think. We're talking about forming our consciences so that we are submitting to the work of the Word in our lives and, and following after Him, having ourselves renewed from the inward, moving again outward. As we noted last week, that word world is actually a word that means this age. And and it's in opposition to the age to come. In other words, there, there is something that is going on in this age, this time and season in which we live, that is opposed to and fundamentally different from the age in which we will spend all of eternity with God. What is in this world at this time, what is, what is in the circumstances of this age, what is in the ideology and the philosophy of, the, philosophy of this age is fundamentally oppo- opposed to what we have in heaven. And what is the end of this age is that the world system is doomed to entire failure. Nothing produced by this world and this age and this system will ever last. But the world won't tell us that, will it? The world doesn't tell us and reveal to us the truth of what it is. That is because the world system is under the control of Satan who is blinding the minds of the unbelieving. And he is enticing us and and tempting us and, and trying to draw us away from Christ so that he might destroy us and devour us. And friends, we have been delivered by Christ. And we have been delivered by Christ to Christ and from this world system. We have been delivered out of this system, away from this system, so that we might live for Jesus Christ. And the pleasures of this system offer no lasting hope. They will only destroy us. This world system is only designed to take us away from that for which we were recreated, and that is for the purpose of loving Christ and Him. Listen to what 1 John chapter 2 says. For a few things that are in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Is that right? Are you all awake? (laughs) For all that is in this world. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing in this world and this system that is from the Father. This world system is entirely from the one who is opposed to the Father. Chapter 3, 1 John, verse 5. And we know that when He, Christ, appeared in order to take away sins, excuse me, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins, no one who sins has seen him or knows him. And there when he, when he talks about abiding in sin or the one who sins, he's talking about as a perpetual lifestyle. He's not talking about occasional sin, 
But he's talking about the one who, who is living in perpetual sin, the one who is perpetually under the authority of sin, dominated by sin, controlled by sin. He says that one has not seen him or knows him. So little children, make sure that no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Christ came to destroy the devil's work, and the devil's work has been to be opposed to you, to God, to Christ in every single way. Friends, if we live for the world, we will get only what the world gives and nothing of what Christ gives. We, we do well when we are tempted to say something like, is this from the world? And if it is from the world, what will I receive from it? Oh, friend, don't, don't, be, don't be deluded. Conformity to the world will only destroy you. Several years ago, one pastor wrote this, If what's fashionable in our society interests you, then true Christianity won't. It's that simple. If you love this world, if you are being conformed to this world, there is nothing about Christ that will be attractive to you. He was dead on. And then a few years later, he started saying things like, you know, if you are worried about the world system, that's just legalism. And, and we've been freed in Christ from legalism. And you don't need to be so dogmatic about the things you do. And his wife bought into that system. And she cultivated an adulterous relationship outside their marriage. And he was angry about that. And so he brought retribution against her. And he had his own adulterous relationship in anger. And then divorced his wife and remarried the adulterous prostitute, for that's what she was. Not literally a prostitute, but that's what she is. And destroyed his ministry. That's not the same pastor, by the way, that I talked about last week. It's another one, a different one, a well-known one whose name you would probably know if I told you about the world system. doesn't matter. We can do what we want. Listen to what Tony Rinke has said in his outstanding book, Newton on the Spiritual Life. Paraphrasing John Newton, he says this, Affections for Christ and desires for worldly comfort are mutually expulsive. In other words, a love for the world drives out affection for Christ. And admiration for Christ pushes out affections for worldly idols. Friendship with Christ, excuse me, friendship with the world is enmity towards Christ. Listen, it is spiritual suicide to claim Christ as your fountain of joy and then feed your soul on sin, idols, and worldliness. The sinful pleasures of this world usurp true affection for Christ and vice versa. Oh, brothers and sisters, we need to get in the habit 
of looking at this world and evaluating this system and asking the question, is this what is going to suck life out of me, spiritual life out of me? Or will this pour life into me? Will this be something that will give me joy in eternity? Or this will this be some of the tears that Christ will have to wipe away in eternity? Well, brothers and sisters, do not be conformed to this world. The world is an obstacle to our transformation. We also saw this last week, the nature of transformation. The nature of transformation. And, and here Paul has given us in verse 2 a command to be transformed. So he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This, this transformation is a command. It's an ongoing command. It's a perpetual command. It ought to be the habit of our lives to continue to pursue transformation into Jesus Christ. This is what we call progressive sanctification. This, this is the norm. And it's a reminder that we have not been saved to remain in our sin. We have been saved in order to be redeemed from our sin, to be transformed from our sin. And, and we need to recognize that this isn't just a matter of changing a few external habits. It, it, it's a transformation that happens inwardly within us. It, keep your finger in Romans chapter 12 and, and look with me at Ephesians 4. And y- y'all are familiar. We, we talk about Ephesians 4 often around here. You know the process of sanctification, right? Verses 22 to 24, put off the old man, renew your mind, put on the new man, verses 22 to 24. Then verses 25 to 32, he gives a number of examples about what it means to look like as one who is being sanctified and renewed. Listen to all the emphasis that he puts here on our words. Verse 25, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Why? So that it will give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And conversely, verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving. All those words about words. He wants our words to be changed. And and some of us need our words changed. But, But is Paul talking there about just, well, just learn a new way to talk, learn a new vocabulary, forget all those bad words and and cultivate a new vocabulary? Yes, he is talking about that. And, and if your vocabulary is profanity-laced, that needs to change. But he's not just talking about changing the external, is he? He's talking about being renewed inwardly. Why do we do those things? Why, why do we stop lying? Verse 25, because we're members of one another. We, we don't lie to each other because we're one in Christ. And how can one member of the body lie to another member of the body? There's an inward renewal, an inward way to think, a new way to think that needs to be transformed. And all the way through this passage, he's reminding us this has to change from the inside out. Verse 32, why do you put on kind and tender-hearted and forgiving words? Because God in Christ has also forgiven you. 
You have been forgiven, and as you meditate on that forgiveness that you have received from God, now you are being renewed on the inside, and now you can speak words that are full of kindness and truth. In a very similar way, James, at the end of James chapter 3, James is that great chapter that focuses primarily on our language and our words. At the end of that chapter, he writes this, The wisdom from above is first pure. (laughs) My wife memorized James, and I hear her saying it even as I'm reading it. I have to read it. She can quote it. The wisdom is from above. The wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And listen to verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The fruit of our lives comes from the seed of righteousness. Yeah, our, our activity needs to change. The way we think needs to change. The what we do needs to change. But that transformation flows from the inside out. It is the fruit of the righteousness that has already taken place in our lives. Be transformed. That's the command. How are we transformed? Recognize the provision that is being made for us. He says, renew your mind. Renew your mind. This is, this is where transformation takes place, by our minds being changed, by thinking in new kinds of ways. We need to be reminded that when we come to Jesus Christ, we have a new mind. We have literally the mind of Christ. Chapter 15, verse 5. Now, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. In other words, you, you, are, you are put together in one body, and as one body we have one mind that is connected to Christ. We have a new mind. We've been given a new way to think and, and a redeemed way to think. First, First Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 16, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Who knows God's mind? Who, who can say, God, let me tell you the way the world ought to work? Just in case anybody's tempted to do that, I've tried that. It doesn't work very well. We don't know the mind of God. We can't instruct the mind of God. We can't inform him about the way the world works. And then listen to what he says. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We've been given the Spirit of God, and in the Spirit of God, we can understand what the mind of Christ is, not to inform Him, but so that we are informed by Him, so that He changes us, so that He transforms us. We have the mind of Christ. We have new minds that have been redeemed by Christ and are Christ's mind Himself. And because of that, our goal is to be heavenly-minded. We looked at this a number of weeks ago Colossians chapter 3, Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your mind on things above. We have the mind of Christ, and at the same time we need to pursue the mind of Christ, to think the way He thinks. And that kind of thinking comes from not only meditating on Him, but submitting to the work of the Spirit in our lives. Romans chapter 8 verse 5, Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit 
the things of the Spirit. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit. We, we, we think the Spirit-informed kinds of thoughts. Mind renewal includes thinking the way the Spirit thinks, desiring what He desires, longing after His desires, conforming ourselves to what He has to say to us, and that is going to change everything we do. How do we do that? Plain and simple, we, we fill our minds with, with the Word of God. And we, we spent a little bit of time going through that last week, but I just submit to you um, Colossians 1, Colossians 3, um, to fill our minds and be saturated with the Word of Christ. Colossians 1, we read this earlier this morning. We proclaim Him, and we admonish every man, that is, we exhort We correct, we counsel, we disciple every man and teach every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We teach with the Word to point people to the Word, to point them to Christ. Colossians 3, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. I remember the first time I read that. Not the first time I read it, like literally, but the first time I really read it. You ever have passages that you think, well, I've read that a thousand times, but I've never really seen it in that way. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Is Is the Word of Christ rich in us? Or are we poverty stricken? Boy, the flesh, the flesh is, tempts us to take us towards poverty, doesn't it? Weakness. Let it it dwell richly within you. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be transformed, it's only going to be by this book and nothing else. That's what's going to change us. That's what's going to transform us. What's the benefit of this? That's where Paul will take us next. The benefits of transformation. The benefits of transformation. And it is that you will know God's will. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. In summary, Paul says there's one great benefit to being transformed, and that is that we will demonstrate that we know what God's will is. And then, and then he teases out three more implications of that. But, but the, the great and grand benefit of being transformed is that we prove we demonstrate. We, not just, we don't just give lip service to, but we demonstrate to anybody that's watching, I know what the will of God is, and you can know what the will of God is by looking at my life, because that's what I'm doing. We prove that we know God's will. What does, what does the apostle mean by that little phrase, the will of God. The will of God is used in a couple of different ways in the Scriptures. One way that the Scripture uses the will of God is to refer to God's sovereign, hidden will, His His sovereign, planned purposes and decrees that are hidden and withheld from us. So, in fact, He uses that 
At the very beginning of this book, Romans chapter 1, he says in verse 10, Always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. When he uses that phrase, the will of God there, he says, I don't know if that's what God has decreed or not. I, I can't know that. I, I hope that that's what I can do, but, but I don't know yet. God has not revealed that to me. In a similar way, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. In other words, it is God's sovereign purpose that has decreed to Paul that he will be an apostle and serve as an apostle. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, Therefore, as those who suffer according to the will of God, they shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We don't get to determine who suffers and who doesn't. That's God's sovereign plan. That's His sovereign purposes to decree who suffers. There are, Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. There, there, there are things that are hidden from us that are within His counsel alone that only He knows. That's His sovereign plan, His sovereign purposes. And then there's another way to think about God's will, and that is... God's moral will, God's revealed law, God's revealed commandments. So, for instance, Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, the one who does the things that have been revealed by God as being his moral will, his requirements, that's the one who's rightly related to me. Ephesians chapter 6, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, God's revealed to us what he would have us to do, and we do that from the heart. That's the one who is in right relationship and right fellowship with him. First Thessalonians chapter 4, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So what's the will of God? The will of God is, is that you would be sanctified to be like Him. And specifically, he says in 1 Thess 4, 3, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That's the, that's the will of God. Don't, don't engage in sexual immorality. Do engage in the process of sanctification. And then Moses will add, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. In other words, that God has secret things that He's hidden from us, but then He also has things that He has revealed to us so that we would do them. And all of that we will have for all of eternity. We have everything we need to live in obedience to Him. And it's that moral law that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 12. We prove when, when, we, are, when we are transformed, when we are sanctified, we prove that we know what God's will is because we're doing that will. We're following that will. How does that work in daily life? Well, we're filling our mind with the Word of God. Every day, we're taking in the Word of God. We're meditating on the Word of God. We're, we're talking about the Word of God to others. And, and that's shaping every decision of every day. How many decisions do you think you make in a day? I don't know. Well, I got out of bed today. That was a good start. That was one decision. Right? We make, we make not just one or two or three decisions, right? We make 
we make hundreds of decisions. I get up in the morning and, um, and I get out of bed and I say, oh, the knee doesn't feel quite so good today. And in that moment, I've got a decision to make. Am I going to complain or am I going to trust God? Right after I get up, I have another decision to make. Where am I going to, get, where am I going to put my affections today? What am I going to fill my mind with today? Is my schedule pressing in on me? Is my desire for exercise greater than my desire for the exercise of the Scriptures in my life? Where am I going to spend my time in in the Scriptures that day? What am I going to meditate on? What am I going to think on? I get in the car. what What am I going to listen to as I make my drive? As I make my drive, and there are 14 drivers on 377 that cut me off and drive too slow or drive too fast or whatever the case may be, and they do it all in one day, in five minutes... What's my response going to be? Am I going to complain and mutter and and curse? Or am I going to say, God, this is your sovereign plan. You have me exactly where you would want me today. You have me exactly where you would have me to do. And on and on and on. Every day, every response, every decision I'm making is revealing. Do I know God's will? Or am I just muddling through life following the course of this world? And friends, as we're being transformed, every decision, conscious and unconscious, is being shaped by what we think about the Word of God. It's been a good week, hasn't it? In the last ten days, we've had six inches of rain at our house. The grass isn't brown anymore. And there's a temptation to say, The weather was out of control three weeks ago when my grass was brown and now it's nice. No, friends. God's worthy to be worshipped when it's 105 unrelentingly and when it's 80 and raining. He is good in every circumstance. How I think about those things demonstrates whether or not I know the will of God. Brothers, as you're being transformed... The benefit is you know the will of God and you do the will of God. There's another benefit that comes from that and that is you will know goodness in God's will. You will know goodness in God's will. Notice that Paul gives us at the end of this verse three more words about God's will. It's good, it's acceptable, and perfect. It's possible to take those words simply as descriptive of what God's will is. So that is... God's moral revealed will is good. God's revealed will is acceptable or pleasing. And God's moral will is perfect. And all those are true statements. But I think the apostle would have us to notice, know something more. It's not just what God's will is. It is also what God's will does. So... When we follow God's will, it produces goodness in us. It's not only good, but it also at the same time makes us good. Does God make commands? Yes. Are they good commands? Yes. And brothers and sisters, they also produce goodness in us. In fact, in chapter 15... 
He's going to say this in verse 14, Concerning you, my brothers, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. He doesn't just mean you're full of the goodness of Christ, which is true. But he also means you are full of goodness that has been produced in you as you have been sanctified. It is making you good. It is making you beneficial. It is making you to be adequate to serve Him. You will not only know goodness in God's will as you are being progressively made good, but you will also know delight in God's will. That word acceptable, some translations say pleasing or well-pleasing. Those words are helpful. That, That captures the sense of it. And the sense is that that doing the will of God makes us pleasing to God. In fact, he says that in verse 1, right? Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, well-pleasing to God. When, When we give ourselves to Him, that's pleasing to Him. But it also means that doing the will of God will give pleasure to us. Obedience to God... And God's will leads, as one writer says, to discernment, and discernment leads to delight in God's will. We happily obey. Isn't it true? I don't think I'm the only one that's ever experienced this. You come up to a temptation, and you say, well, I know I shouldn't, but it really doesn't look so bad. And you say, ah, just, I know I shouldn't, but just this once, I'm going to indulge. Pick your favorite sin. For years, mine was gluttony. And I'm just going to, it's okay. Two donuts on the way to the office, Regine doesn't know. Oh, about six months later she did, but that's (laughs) another story. Or my anger. Or my self-righteousness or my defensiveness, or my covetousness. So pick your sin. It doesn't look so bad, does it? Before we we cross into the stream of that sin, it, it just looks about ankle deep, right? And then you get in, and it feels like a riptide taking you to the depths of the ocean. And you realize in that instant, it is not what I thought it would be. It's not satisfying me. It's not pleasing to Him. And it's not pleasing to me either. I've mentioned on uh, more than one occasion, I have struggled over the years with my tongue. I have um, developed the art of... um, cultivating a snarky tongue. You know what I'm talking about? For a time, I didn't actually say this, but kind of treated it like it was a spiritual gift. You know, the spiritual gift of snarkiness? Okay, so like three of you also have the same gift. We can go to lunch maybe and be snarky together. And I've seen the fallout from that. Seems so witty and clever at the beginning, doesn't it? And then the word comes out. And you're just going, wait, 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 wait. It's 
Too late. It's gone. In God's grace, He's working in my heart so that all those snarky words don't always come out. I've never gone home at the end of the day and said, man, I sure wish I'd said that. But I have gone home and said, oh God, you're so gracious. You kept me from saying the thing that my heart was inclined to. Thank you for that sanctifying work. Friend, when you when you obey Christ, when you do His will, in that moment it's hard. Oh, but the overflow of that is such sweetness. It's well-pleasing. It's pleasing to Him. Oh, but it's pleasing to your own soul as well. You'll never regret. You will never regret being obedient to Him. It will produce delight in Him and in His Word. Third benefit, fourth benefit, you will know maturity in God's will. The word perfect at the end of this verse means complete or mature. It's used frequently that way in the New Testament. Colossians 1.28 uses it in that way. When we know and follow God's will, that is the end for which we are created. That is the goal for which we are created. He's created us to move towards the end of maturity and completeness. And this Word will do that. This Word will make us to be everything that we are designed to be. That maturity is where God is leading us. That maturity is what God is doing in us. And that that is happening individually, and that is also happening corporately, which is where I want to take us as we finish up. And that is to Acts chapter 6. So turn with me to Acts chapter 6. This morning we are going to recognize a group of men that the Lord has given us to serve as deacons in this church body. And, and these are men that are exhibiting the kinds of character that we have spoken of this morning. These are men that are demonstrating, not perfectly, for none of us demonstrates it perfectly on this earth, but they're demonstrating that they are sold out for Christ, and they're committed to doing His will, and we have seen the fruit of that in their lives. They're giving evidence of the kind of transformation that we have spoken of this morning. They've exhibited not only the characteristics we have seen, but they've also exhibited the characteristics of the first deacons that were appointed in the church. Listen to what its Scripture says about those men, Acts chapter 6. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So there was a, a problem with the Hellenistic widows not getting fed and the, um, the Jewish believers weren't taking care of the proselytes. And, and um, so those who were Hellenistic were um, concerned about favoritism in the body and making sure that we want to take care of everybody. And the apostles said, you know, we need to do that. We don't have ability to do that. Let's get seven more men that will come alongside us and help us in that task. That's what he's referring to here. 
Let's uh, put them in charge of this task. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found full approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And here we find a number of characteristics of deacons. A deacon is a man who is godly and has a godly reputation in the church. As you think about these men, we have appointed them, we have recognized them because they have a good reputation in the body. Notice what he says in verse 3. Select seven men of good reputation. Select men that as the body looks out says, who has a good reputation? Who, Who has a life of integrity? that we have observed, that we can say, that's a man that's full of the Spirit of God. Again, verse 5, Stephen was such a man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. The congregation saw that. They recognized that. The the, the work that the, the deacon does is work. He has been called to do a particular task, and the deacons in Acts chapter 6 were called to wait on tables. The deacons we have are called to do a variety of different things, all kinds of tasks that will benefit the, the church body. But what I want us to notice is that they are not so much about task as they are about spiritual character and spiritual maturity. They're full of the Spirit. They're full of the Spirit in such a way that they gain approval within the body. Notice verse 5, the statement found approval and the whole congregation, the entire congregation said, yay, yes. That's why I was excited to when we put four men before you and said, these are men that we think can serve our body well. You unanimously said on all four, yes. They gained approval from the whole congregation and said, yes, these are men that will serve us well. And the deacon has a personal role, but that personal role has a corporate responsibility. Yeah, he's supposed to be changing personally, spiritually, but that has congregational benefit as well. It's his gifting It's his role, it's his responsibility, but it's for the church. It's for us. They they come alongside us to serve us so that Christ gets the glory. A deacon is not above the congregation and he is not below the elders. Their role differs from the elders, right? So verse 3, they're they're put in charge of this task. Verse 4, the apostles who serve as a template for for elders in the church as it becomes a formed formed ecclesiology. We will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. The apostles had one task. The deacons had another task. The congregation had another task. It wasn't that one was superior and one was inferior. It's just a different task. And so as these men come, they're coming not in a position of superiority. They're, in fact, coming in a position of servanthood. And what is essential to remember about them is their faithfulness as they come to us. They're recognized by the congregation. They're approved by the congregation. I want you to notice something else. Verse 5, who are these first seven guys? 
Stephen. Anybody know Stephen? Man, what a great story, isn't it? How about Philip? Know Philip? Yep. A couple stories in the scriptures about Philip. Prochorus. Anybody got a Prochorus story? How about a Nicanor story? I hope I'm saying that right. Or Timon. Or Parmenas. Or Nicholas. Isn't that amazing? So here's, here's the first church. And deacons. It's like the first seven guys. And we know two of them. What's important is not their reputation as it persists, but what is important is that they are known by God. God knows their names. God knows their task. And God will reward them. Now, we can honor them. We can come alongside our deacons and say, Hey, brother, I love you. I thank you. I thank the Lord for you. How can I help you? How can I be a blessing to you? But we also understand that many things that they do may go unrewarded on earth, but they will go rewarded in heaven. The Lord will remember. What's the result of the ministry of the deacons? More people doing ministry in keeping with their gifts. So because the deacons come alongside, now the elders and the apostles can do their task and the congregation can do their task. And the ultimate benefit, verse 7, the Word of God kept on spreading. The church has matured and the gospel goes forth. It's good to have faithful men. It's good to have men in our body who are being transformed by Christ who are willing to serve Christ. And what we want to do as we conclude the service this morning is we want to ask those men that have been affirmed by you as deacons to come forward. I'm going to ask Jonathan Goodner. And uh, I didn't have Jonathan here. Where's Jonathan? There, Jonathan. And Tyler Looper and Gene McNeely and Roger Recksteiner. If you guys would come forward. Man, they're servants. They don't even want to come up front. (laughs) We did not ask these men to be deacons in order to give them a task. We asked them to be deacons because they're all already serving. They're already being used up and being poured out for the ministry of Christ, and we are recognizing them. And then we're going to give them a few more things to do as well to come alongside and help us. Brothers, we need help. In God's grace, He's seeing fit to grow and expand our church body, and we're thankful for that. And We need help, and these men are going to come and, and help us with that. And I'm going to ask the elders also to come forward, um, Keith and Don and David and Lee. And if you guys would come up, and uh, I've asked Don and Keith if they would lead us in prayer this morning for these men. And then we will be dismissed. Don, if you'd come, and then Keith. And would you stand with us in um, confirmation of our solidarity with one another? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of the ministry of this church. We thank you for the beauty of this body, the faithfulness of this body 
the obedience of this body to your word, the unity of this body. We thank you that you have graced us with church members who truly love you and are truly saved people, whose lives are characterized by obedience and faithfulness to you. We thank you for the many examples we see every single day in this church, both spoken and unspoken, revealed and unrevealed. We thank you, and we know we are blessed people. Father, I thank you for these four men that you've given us to come alongside of us, to work with us, to build up this body further, to give you glory and to give you praise. It's all about you. I thank you for Tyler. I thank you for Jonathan. I thank you for Roger. I thank you for Gene. I thank you for the task that you've given them. I thank you for the unanimity in the calling of these men. And I pray that they would look to you, that they would grow in humility and grace, and they would take the task that you've given them faithfully and seriously. I know that they will, that they would serve you well, without recognition, humbly, doing what's best for the congregation, without receiving any accolades from anyone, but serving you and obeying you. I thank you for their lives. Thank you for their reputation in this church. I thank you for their willingness to serve. And I thank you that you have brought them to us and trusted them to us, and we are excited to work with them. Thank you for the gifts you've given each one of them. And uh, pray that you would give us wisdom uh, to put them in areas of service where they can be useful to you and use their best, use their gifts uh, to the embitterment of this church and to your glory. Uh, watch over them. Cause your face to shine upon them. Give them your peace. Give them your wisdom. Help them to be faithful. And help them to hear you say, Well done one day. Good and faithful servants enter into the joy of our rest. We thank you for them. In your name we pray. Amen. And Father, just echoing what Don has already prayed, we are such a blessed and graced people. Uh, these men uh, that you have been kind to bring to us, uh, reflective of a congregation that serves you with joy and excellence, that love you, that love one another, and... Uh, we, we just stand in awe and praise you and thank you. Your, your word says, if we, uh, one wants to be great in the kingdom, let him be the servant of all. And we know that Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, came not to be served, but to serve. Service brings you glory. Service is your idea of greatness. And we thank you that we see in these brothers a servant's heart. We thank you for their humility. We thank you for their energy. We thank you that they look at everyone in this room as an opportunity to love and serve and benefit in some way. And as has already been said, that they're already doing these things. So we thank you. This is your work. This is your kindness. This is your grace upon our church. We thank you for their leadership. We pray that they would stay close to you in their walks with you each day. Keep them humble. Keep them 
uh, in the Scriptures, on their knees, looking to You each day. We pray that You would guard their homes and their marriages, uh, that they would uh, shepherd and, and, and be servants in their homes. And we thank You that as we look to their work and to their example of servanthood as they lead us, that we might grow in our examples as servants, that we might grow more into the image of Christ who came not to be served but to serve. And, uh, and so we ask Your special blessing on these men today. We affirm this calling on their life. We affirm their character that You have worked in them. We affirm the giftedness that they have. And, um, and again, once again, we just stand in awe of Your kindness and grace to us not just in giving us these brothers, but on a church family that loves to serve you and loves to serve one another. So we entrust these men to you. Might they lead with excellence and humility. Might we honor them this day as is appropriate, as your kind gifts to us. And we thank you that we might be a serving church that serves you, that serves one another, and then we go out these doors to a lost and dark world that needs the service of the gospel. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.